Welcome to the Inside Elections Podcast, where we analyze elections in a nonpartisan, data-driven, and accessible way. In this episode, we'll reveal our big lessons from the Iowa caucus results, and we'll dive into the art of delegate counting with a special guest from the Associated Press. Buckle up. Hello, I'm Nathan Gonzalez, editor and publisher of Inside Elections, one of the go-to places for nonpartisan political analysis for more than 40 years. Uh, Right now, I'm watching HGTV's Hometown, which is in Laurel, Mississippi, uh, in Mississippi's 4th District, down in the southeast corner of the state, and it's represented by Republican Mike Ezel. And I'm Jacob Rubashkin, deputy editor of Inside Elections. And I've been watching Percy Jackson and the Olympians on Disney Plus, uh, which takes place all across the country, really. Uh, But the characters are based at uh, a place called Camp Half-Blood, which is uh, on Long Island, on the north shore of Long Island, around Montauk, which is in the first congressional district of New York, uh, represented by Republican Nick LaLota. And we're joined today by a special guest, Leah Askarinam. I say guest, but she's a close friend and alum of Inside Elections, also former writer for the New York Times, currently politics reporter for 538 and on the Associated Press Decision Desk team. Leah, before we get to what you're watching, you have to answer the question of what congressional district you grew up in. So not a, not very exciting. I grew up in Maryland's. 8th Congressional District, currently represented by Jamie Raskin back in the day, Chris Van Hollen. So Bethesda. I grew up in Bethesda. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently that's a boring. (laughs) Apparently that's a requirement to be on this podcast. I've really tried. My whole identity has been trying to, you know, make people forget it, but it's true. I am I am from Bethesda. Back in the day, I mean, that was it was Connie Morella territory. Hey, that's uh, before before it was Van Hollen world. It was. I'm a, that that is where I'm. That is those are my political roots. Connie Morella and Chris Van Hollen. <laughs> and speaking of roots, Inside Elections used to be called the Rothenberg Political Report, and Stu Rothenberg, not a Montgomery County native, but has lived in Montgomery County, Maryland, for a very long time. So apparently, that that is just in the DNA of this. Newsletter Don't brag podcast. about it, though. That's not a good sign. We're, we'll talk about your home state more, Nathan. Yeah, well, we have plenty of Oregon stuff all over this. Um, Leah, are you watching a show, and does it take place in a congressional district right now? This is a great question, and I did a bit of research. So uh, during the elections, I tend to rewatch Gilmore Girls, just trying to go in for full-on being as predictable as possible on this podcast, apparently. And I did some research to try to figure out where Stars Hollow, the fictional town that uh, that's the setting of Gilmore Girls, what congressional districts, it, what congressional district it is in. And I'm pretty sure it's based on a town in Connecticut's fifth district, which is Johanna Hayes. Is this the kind of thing where they're like, Greatest greatest online forum ever, 500 pages locked. What congressional district <laughs> did Gilmore Girls take place in? I Is there like a there, community dedicated? I thought there must be, but apparently I am the community um, because I have not <laughs> seen tons of overlap in the Gilmore Girls uh, election campaign analysis world. But maybe that will change after people listen to this and, and make their existence known. Well, if this creates controversy, I'm all for it because then it will drive up people <laughs> listening and, and watching this. So, but let's uh, but let's get started before we get into the presidential news. Uh, let's highlight some congressional news. Jacob, kick us off. 
We got another update in redistricting out of Louisiana, where a federal court had thrown out the state's previous congressional map uh, after that Alabama Supreme Court ruling uh, basically changed the way redistricting has to be done in states with significant black populations. Louisiana, six congressional districts, only one of them was majority black. Uh, The black proportion of the population in the state is significantly higher than one sixth. So a judge ordered the state to redraw the map to include a second black opportunity district. The Republicans in the state legislature uh, have proposed a a new map that would satisfy that criteria. And it would create a second black majority district that Democrats should be able to win that would basically extend all the way from Shreveport up in the uh, northwest corner of the state down to Baton Rouge which is a reminiscent of a map that Louisiana tried to get passed in the 1990s that was struck down for being a racial gerrymander, just a sign of how the politics around this issue has changed. Uh, most notably, though, this map would uh, force uh, Congressman Garrett Graves and Congresswoman Julia Letlow into a member-on-member race uh, in, in their district in the northeast part of the state, uh, a race that Graves would probably start out as the underdog in, uh, given how the districts are split up. So uh, it still has to pass the state legislature. New House Speaker Mike Johnson, who is uh, from Louisiana, has expressed some uh, concern about the new map, which would, of course, cost his party a seat in the House. Uh, But given that the governor and Republicans in the state legislature are behind it, it probably will end up looking something uh, like the map we have now. And what's pretty great about this is that the new Republican governor of the state, Jeff Landry, uh, was a victim of redistricting uh, in the post-2010 census going into 2012. uh, He was drawn into a district with Congressman, fellow Republican Charles Bustani, and uh, Landry lost that race, ended up then running for statewide office and finally uh, for state attorney general and then getting elected governor. So his it's interesting that he's in the mix here because of his history with, with redistricting. And I, I think this is a really fascinating instance of how politics can be a little bit more nuanced than we sometimes like to pretend it is, right? Because both Landry and Johnson are Republicans. They're both Louisiana Republicans, but ultimately they're on different sides of this issue because they have slightly different priorities. Johnson's priority as speaker is to maintain and expand his majority. This new map that looks likely to get passed is uh, detrimental to that goal. It will cost him a seat. Uh, Jeff Landry does not care as much about which party controls Congress. He's uh, almost trying to settle some scores here. Garrett Graves, that congressman who will probably get pushed out of his seat, uh, was one of the most prominent anti-Landry voices in last year's gubernatorial race. He explored his own bid. He ultimately passed on running, but supported another candidate uh, and and has, has made known that he does not get along with Landry. Also, the Democrat who looks likely to step into this uh, new uh, seat, if it, it if it's drawn the way we think it will be, uh, is a state legislator named Cleo Fields, uh, who was a former congressman, actually, who represented a district that looked very similar to this one in the 90s. And while he's a Democrat, he's also friends with Jeff Landry. So uh, Landry gets to do a little bit more home politicking, settle some scores and and balances within Louisiana. Uh, and that seems to be taking higher priority uh, than trying to help out Mike Johnson in, in Washington, D.C. And Leah, actually, I was thinking about you when this news broke, because part of Garrett Graves' criticisms of this map. Uh, it feels a little tongue-in-cheek, but he was talking about the horror of some of Saints fans and Cowboys fans being put in the same district together. Uh, and you've spent time, you've lived in, in Louisiana, uh, and I don't know if you're a Saints fan or a Drew Brees fan, or, or, but uh, how, how would that go, Saints fans and Cowboys fans living together? I'm a Saints fan. Um, Saints fans are very, they're very kind people. They're accepting <laughs> and warm. I think uh, they'd they'd figure it out, but that is not me. That is not me endorsing the actual lines. I'm just saying (laughs) they're fine. They're fine. It can exist. It could work. You're saying that they could live together. Absolutely. They could live together. Absolutely. Well, I know Saints fans can live with Cowboys fans. I don't know vice versa, but I think, think it would work out. 
we're, this is where we're missing we're missing Aaron, who was our who was our token our token Cowboys uh, fan. Uh, but uh, Leah, what what uh, what's a headline we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't miss? I have been watching uh, the consolidation around Donald Trump in the Republican primary, and one of the places you can look for that is in Congress. So I think the the highest profile, latest endorsement was from Senator Ted Cruz. Um, but over the last uh, week or so, starting before we had the results from the Iowa caucuses, before the Iowa caucuses began, we have seen a kind of flood of members of Congress, um, Republican members of the House, um, publicly declaring their allegiance to Trump. Previously, there had still been, you know, I think for a while, there's been about 100 members of the House that had um, publicly endorsed Trump. But um, there was a kind of waiting game, not wanting to interfere or not, you know, wanting to at least the kind of public explanation from a lot of them being, you know, they want the voters to decide. But just in the last few days, we have, um, in addition to the high profile endorsements that we know about from like Vivek and when he dropped out. We also have Rick Crawford from Arkansas, Marco Rubio, Senate, obviously, Julia Letlow in Louisiana, Nick Langworthy in New York, Dan Bishop, Jody Arrington, all in the last um, few days, and the list goes on. So uh, yeah, if you wanted more evidence that Donald Trump is probably in a pretty good position to win this nomination. Um, just look at Congress. And it was interesting last year as the former president started to get into uh, his legal troubles with his different indictments. I think one thing to watch was how many of the people who endorsed him previously uh, rescinded their endorsement or moved away from it. And uh, if we go down that list, uh, it's very short because it doesn't exist. Like Does no not one, exist. No one, yeah. no, one ba- no one stepped away from him. And he only continues to add, uh, add to that uh, list of endorsements. I was just going to ask if we thought that any sitting members of the House or Senate would endorse, Republican members would endorse Biden. By the end of this year. In 2016, there was one Republican member of Congress who endorsed Hillary Clinton. That was Congressman Hanna um, up in upstate New York. He was retiring, so he didn't face the same kind of political pressure. I do wonder, Mitt Romney, maybe, uh, on his way out, also a little bit more unencumbered. Probably a non-starter for a House member, but uh, unless they were retiring, but I am curious, you know, if we see any sort of organized Republican crossover support at this point. I think you're looking in the right place for members who are not planning on coming back or not planning on having a near-term uh, history or near-term involvement with the Republican Party because it's just, that's not gonna that's not gonna go well for them. Yeah, and I wonder if especially now in 2024, like what members of Congress are left who have not stood up to Trump and would do it now? Um, And then which ones have been elected since 2016 who are not uh, fully supportive of Trump? I just, it's a more loyal party in 2024, I think, than it was in 2016. Or, I mean, every year that goes by, it's it's a year that's more loyal to Donald Trump and the Republican Party in Congress. And do either Liz Cheney or Chris Christie speak at the DNC later this year? Not Chris Christie. Uh, Cheney, I I think Cheney still wants, wants to be a Republican. It's just there's no room for her in the Republican Party right now. So I don't know. Speaking of the DNC is a kind of a career ender, I think, as a Republican. Yeah, let's see what happens in 2026, because like at this point, there still might be a <laughs> 2028, um, because like at this point, like you're still kind of waiting to see, or I think some Republicans like Liz Cheney are still could be waiting to see if, you know, there is a 
I mean, this is it's almost comical because we talk about this all the time, but like, is this the year where Republicans decide that Donald Trump isn't going to be their leader anymore? Um, and uh, I, I would imagine people would want to wait until after his first election after losing. And I'm watching uh, Republican Mike Bost in Mike Republican Mike Bost is on TV uh, with ads ahead of the March 19th primary in Illinois' 12th district. Uh, let's let's hear a clip of a clip of one of his ads. Boss stands with President Trump to finish the wall, hire more agents to secure our border and provide them with the latest technology and stop the cartel's flow of deadly fentanyl. Conservative leader Mike Bost gets results. I'm Mike Bost and I approve this message. This is downstate Illinois, uh, which part of the district is closer to St. Louis, Missouri than it is to, to Chicago. Uh, but Boss faces a competitive challenge from former state rep Darren Bailey, who lost the 2022 gubernatorial race. But he won this district by almost 50 points uh, because this is the Republican part of, of Illinois. Um, Bost has been on the air for a couple of weeks. Uh, this is a sign that he's taking his ra- this race seriously. Uh, Bailey hasn't been on TV yet, uh, but this is a, uh, a one of the maybe handful of primaries to watch to see if a sitting incumbent uh, will actually lose re-election in in the primary. And what's this seat rating in the general? Uh, this is a solid, good question. A solid Republican seat. Yeah, the the battle is going to be here on the March nineteenth, March nineteenth primary. Yeah, and I, I would be interested to to see how Bailey did in the primary, in the gubernatorial primary, in this district, which was, you know, of course, uh, uh, more competitive than the gubernatorial race in both directions. Right, the gubernatorial race was not competitive in this district, also not competitive in the other direction statewide. Um, but I, I do wonder, um, given that it is Bailey's kind of home base and in, in the southern part of the state, I'm sure he did well there. Uh, but, you know, I, I do wonder, you know, just how well he did in a Republican primary electorate. Yeah. And that primary was kind of messy, but this is Bailey's, you know, this is contains part of Bailey's turf. And for those of you who do maybe don't remember Mike Bost, you might remember uh, a picture of him uh, from when he was initially elected to Congress and when he was in the state legislature on the floor and he was uh, uh, throwing a tantrum and he threw papers up in the air and, you know, kind of quoting Moses, uh, let my people go. Uh, it was uh, it, it was a fun, uh, I'll, I'll maybe I'll put a link to the story I wrote after that election uh, in the in the chatter because I was a, that was a fun race. Yeah. I think there are less fun Mike boss stories too, but, um, you could Google Mike boss <laughs> dog, I guess. And that'll probably get you where you, mm. where you need to go. The, the thing that stands out to me is that in that gubernatorial race, Mike boss had $50 million in backing from conservative mega donor, Dick Uline or Darren Bailey had Darren, Darren Bailey, Bailey had, Darren yeah. Bailey, excuse me. Darren Bailey had $50 million in, in backing, uh, that that primary really became the battle of the Republican billionaires. So I believe Ken Griffin uh, was was supporting the the mayor of Aurora, who was also running uh, in that race. I don't think that Uline is going to spend that kind of money on Bailey uh, to knock off a sitting Republican in a primary uh, for Congress. We shall see. But I think that also certainly alters the calculus in addition to the difficulty in, in ousting an incumbent uh, in a primary, uh, even under the best of circumstances. What's what's Bailey's argument against Bost? Or is there an argument against Bost? I think it's very loose. I mean, es- establishment, um, I think this is more, my sense is that it's more about Bailey trying to move up rather than the sins of, of Mike Bost. Although if you're going to f- have the incumbent fired, you have to make you have to make that case uh but but jacob and jacob you're right that i one of the things that might be saving boss is ba- the lack of funding that bailey is going to to end up having the inside elections podcast is sponsored by george washington university's graduate school of political management or gspm the gspm program offers master's degrees in legislative affairs and political management with in-person and online class schedules designed for the working professional. 
it was those class schedules that I might have appreciated the most as a GSPM grad and really set the program apart. Uh, with Without that flexibility, I probably wouldn't have done GSPM and I probably wouldn't have the master's degree that I have right now uh, because I was able to keep my full-time job and, and get the degree. Uh, and I really benefited from a few years of professional experience before I entered the program because it just created, I had categories in my mind for information that I was that I was learning in the classroom that uh, then I could apply to my my daily job. So uh, please click on the link and see if the GSPM program uh, is right for you. Well, I want to thank everybody. This has been some period of time, and most importantly, we want to thank the great people of Iowa. Thank you. We love you all. What a turnout. What a crowd. I can safely say tonight, Iowa made this Republican primary a two-person race. Because of your support, in spite of all of that that they threw at us, everyone against us, we've got our ticket punched out of Iowa. On Monday, we finally got there, the 2024 Iowa caucus, or caucuses, depending on which style guide you're using, uh, took place. Uh, Republican voters headed to not quite the polls, but to their caucus locations and made their preferences for president known. And what we learned was that Trump is still very much the front runner in this Republican primary. He finished in first place with an absolute majority of the vote, 51%. Uh, he won all uh, but one of Iowa's 99 counties. Uh, he lost the last county, Johnson County, by one vote, uh, not 1%, but one vote to Nikki Haley, who finished third with 19%, Ron DeSantis finishing second with 21%, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy much further back at about 8%. Uh, he dropped out that night, uh, leaving just Trump, DeSantis, and Haley as the main contenders uh, in this primary. A pretty dominant win for Trump, uh, but also a very low turnout election. Just about 5% of the electorate showed up to caucus. Uh, caucuses already low turnout events add in you know sub-zero weather and and minus 20 wind chill in much of the state and you have a recipe for a pretty uh quiet affair which is what this turned out to be so Jacob, what does this mean moving forward <laughs> uh it means that we're heading for a rematch uh trump versus biden round two uh, which is where we've been uh, i would argue for all of last year as well the the argument for the DeSantis campaign was heavily predicated on Iowa. He spent a lot of money here. He's been advertising, uh, and the pro-DeSantis Super PAC has been advertising in Iowa since March of last year. Nine months they've been on the air in Iowa for 20%. The DeSantis campaign claimed that they knocked on 3 million doors, which is not possible, first of all. Right, there aren't that many doors in Iowa, um, and and Ann Selzer, the the Iowa uh, queen of polling, uh, has a, has a great bit about this that she will tell anyone who is interested. Um, but the DeSantis campaign talked a huge game when it came to their operation in the state, their ground game. They had endorsements from the governor, from evangelical leaders. He spent a ton of time there. He did a full Grassley visiting all ninety nine counties, and he fell flat on his face. You know, he overperformed his polling a little bit, so I'll give him that. Uh, he was polling at about 16%. He got up to 21, but that's still 30 points behind Trump. If DeSantis can't win in Iowa, a state that uh, seems constructed for a candidate like him who can appeal to more social conservatives, evangelical voters, a state where he had a spending advantage, a state where he had establishment and grassroots support, if he can't come close there, it's hard to see how he comes close in any of these other states on the primary calendar yet to come. Yeah, there are, I, I just, when I watched DeSantis uh, on election night, like talk about kind of just building momentum, there is no metric in which <laughs> there is momentum on the DeSantis campaign. I mean, for example, you talked about polling and overperforming. Yes, he overperformed the average, um, the average coming into caucus night, but never back down the pro DeSantis super PAC at the end of May, early June, when DeSantis was just getting into the race, put out a poll 
that showed in the, this is in the crowded field, Trump ahead of a second place DeSantis, 39 to 29. He finished with 21%. So even according to DeSantis' own data, he, he dropped over the course of the campaign and lost by not 10 points, but 30 points. And so I, uh, and I, I looked into that 3 million doors and I, I found one local TV piece where uh, it was the, it was the piece where Casey DeSantis, his wife and the first lady of Florida, uh, she was knocking on the 1 millionth door. I think they said that they knocked on 1 million doors in Iowa, 3 million doors across the early States. But none of that looks good for DeSantis because that means voters had plenty of information. They knew who he was and they decided, nope, I'm not. I don't want it. Uh, I should check 538's uh, door counting tracker to see uh, where where we've ended up. I don't know if they're counting front doors, side doors. Um, no, I mean, obviously, uh, door counting is not it's even if it's true, is not a metric that we use in campaign analysis to um, to decide of it or to evaluate um, the credibility of a campaign. Um, I will say, like, I wonder how much the idea that it is still second place keeps DeSantis from at least dropping out immediately. Um, and I mean, I, I believe it's like, this is completely arbitrary, right? Like we're talking about a two-point difference when we're talking about the overall sentiment of voters. Um, I don't think, you know, placing second when you're 30 points behind Trump and two points ahead of your other competitor is a uh, a very strong um, data point or a strong measurement. Um, but he did play second. And if he had placed third, if he had gotten two points less, um, I think that there is a chance we would have seen him drop out um, on election night. Um, and that's just a hunch that it's not me. This is no, like, I don't have any intel on this. Um, but uh, the fact that he still is able to say that it is second place keeps this primary going at least through today. <laughs> um, and given that DeSantis has not been putting a whole bunch of his attention or his campaign messaging on New Hampshire. Can he get away with a major underperformance in New Hampshire and yet stay in the race after that and kind of keep this primary going and going, even though we know what the ultimate destination is, as long as it remains on this trajectory? Yeah, the, the idea that he's going to finish probably a distant third in New Hampshire next week. And he's pushing to say he's going to stay until South Carolina, where he's going to finish third again in order to make his move on March 5th. Super Tuesday is just, it's, uh, it's, it's absurd. I'll use the word. I, I just don't know. It's not, it's not going to, it's not going to happen. There's no way. You know, if you had a candidate who, you know, placed fourth in Iowa and then placed fifth in New Hampshire, don't go there. Distant, distant second in Nevada. You might look at them and say, "Oh, they're dead in the water," um, and you would be wrong because that was that was Joe Biden's path to the nomination. But obviously, it's a very different situation. Um, I, I'm just trying to stir the pot here. I don't think that DeSantis or Haley have the the kind of latitude uh, to to pull off the kind of upset that Joe Biden was able to do. But I, I think it is always useful to remember that this notion that you have to win Iowa to win the nomination is, you know, not borne out historically. Uh, and there are plenty of examples of candidates who sacrifice one of the early states, right? The the you don't have to win all of the early states in order to win the nomination in a normal contest. John McCain did not contest Iowa super seriously in 2008. The notion that you have to win all of them is is not true, but of course this primary is just a different kind of situation. No, and I think that's a really good point and it's it's just draws attention to the fact that this is we are in a different political era right now. Like New Hampshire um, has, you know, largely been a predictor of who the nominee is going to be in um, Republican uh, presidential races. And in, you know, it, it is possible for Nikki Haley to win New Hampshire. And what, then what, right? Like, it, it, that doesn't mean 
that she's even close to getting the nomination, yeah. um, which is like, you know, in 20, in, in previous years, Iowa was kind of like a, a badge of your social conservatism. But like that doesn't really seem to be the case anymore either with Trump. Um, and then looking back at 2020, um, it's a completely different story with Democrats because they don't have a Donald Trump. Um, I mean, maybe if something like maybe if Obama were running or something, you know, there would be a, you know, and somehow he got third in Iowa, but like he wouldn't get yeah. third. <laughs> yeah. He wouldn't get third in Iowa. Um, so like this consolidation that, you know, you can kind of expect it wasn't completely out of the blue in 2020 for Democrats. It was it was a potential viable path um, that, you know, we were all reporting on, um, whereas that path just doesn't seem to be to, to exist for the 2024 Republican primary for anybody other than Trump. And you brought up a good scenario that we should flesh out a little bit that if Nikki Haley does pull off a surprise in New Hampshire and does happen to to beat Trump, I think Trump is still the front runner for the nomination because that New Hampshire electorate is more moderate. Uh, independents are allowed to participate in the primary if they'd like. Um, that is different than South Carolina and most of the other Super Tuesday states where they're going to be more conservative electorates that are friendlier to President Trump. And so uh, Haley winning in New Hampshire. If we get out ahead of that potential news, we're not predicting it. It's just, if she does, I think it's more of a hiccup on the on the path. That's a mixed metaphor <laughs> for Trump winning the nomination uh, than than the the beginning of the Haley. You know the Haley. Uh, train. I'm going to. I'm going to try to book four metaphors in one in one sentence. But can I can I throw a uh, a historical comp out for for the crowd here? Yes. The two the Please. 2000 Democratic presidential primary. Yep. Vice President Al Gore, New Jersey Senator slash New York Knicks uh, championship winner slash. Princeton Rhodes Scholar Bill Bradley running for the Democratic nomination. Al Gore, sitting vice president, obviously the front runner. Al Gore wins the Iowa caucuses by 26 points. So not quite as much as Trump, but uh, it's a two-person race. He wins 63-37. Uh, he only wins New Hampshire. Al Gore only wins New Hampshire uh, by four points, 49-45. New Hampshire is a pitched battle between Al Gore and Bill Bradley. Um, and then this is, uh, you know, who, who would have known? Uh, Delaware and Washington have their primaries in between uh, New Hampshire and Super Tuesday. But similar to New Hampshire this year, they don't actually get delegates for them. Um, and, and Al Gore wins both of those pretty handily uh, and then wipes out Bradley on Super Tuesday and Bradley drops out. Uh, I I wonder if that's that's kind of what we're going to see here, right? Is that you've got an interesting but ultimately uncompetitive fight in Iowa, a very competitive fight in New Hampshire, and then a wipeout in Super Tuesday that removes all doubt. South Carolina is a little bit of a wrinkle here just because of, of Nikki Haley's home state advantage, but I, I think I think a lot about that 2000 primary uh, when it when it comes to to this race. And, and whether that has lessons for Trump beyond the primary um, will, remains to be seen. But I just thought I'd throw that out there. And that that's one of the reasons why you're great at this, Jacob, because you said the words, I think a lot about the 2000 primary. Who was doing this? But um, the, and the, but the, everything you, when you hear, when, when Jacob, when you brought up Al Gore, some people are probably thinking, Al Gore, I haven't heard that name in a while. Fun fact, Al Gore is still younger than both Donald Trump and Joseph R. Biden. So uh, maybe there's maybe there's still a chance out there. Hey, I love the idea of Al Gore paving the way for Donald Trump 24 <laughs> years later. Um, but no, I mean, it is like, you know, what, what we're seeing here isn't, I think it's a good point. Like primaries are weird. Yeah. You know, this is, this is a... This is in many ways a very different, very different primary, and yet we've we've seen similar numbers before. I was just going to say we got a we got a poll today from from Suffolk University and and the Boston Globe 
which is, you know, Suffolk is a really good pollster. They're doing a tracking, a rolling tracking poll in New Hampshire for the next week. So we will have a lot of data. We'll be able to pick up on any movements that we see. Trump is up by 16 points in this poll. Um, this is this is they not a close race that they are finding. He's at 50. Nikki Haley's at 34. We'll see if she's able to build any sort of momentum over the next week. But that that may be where things stand. And and It'll be very difficult for her to make something out of that kind of result. But let's talk. Let's talk about delegates because in the that that's that is the actual primary, uh, or that is the that is what you need to win a nomination. Uh, Leah, uh, walk us through a little bit about what we what people should know about uh, the delegate process. So, uh, in a nutshell, uh, the uh, Republican Party is. Uh, holds every primary or the, the delegate allotment for every state in Republican Party in the Republican Party is different. So in Democratic contests across the board nationally, there's a set kind of rule that uh, explains or uh, dictates how each state allocates its delegates. Um, so a 15% threshold, basically you need to get 15% of the vote for Democrats um, in order to get any delegates. And then um, there's congressional district um, delegates and there are at-large and um, PLEO delegates. So basically that's – they have a, a kind of complex process, but it's also the same in every single state. With Republicans, every state does it differently, um, which makes it uh, – kind of hard, I think, some for some folks to put together like what how early things actually get competitive. Um so what you need to know now um is in Iowa it was pretty pretty easy. So 40 delegates, they're assigned proportionally. So if you get 20% of the vote in Iowa, you get 20% of the 40 delegates. Um New Hampshire's different. New Hampshire, there is a threshold, which is 10% of the vote. So in order for any candidate or any Republican candidate to get any delegates, they have to reach that 10% threshold. Um, and that, I think, is the interesting story for Ron DeSantis in, uh, next week, is can he get to that 10% point? Um, because if he doesn't, he will – leave New Hampshire without any additional delegates. Now, in Iowa, he barely um, edged out an additional delegate over Haley. Um, he had nine at the end of the night. Um, Haley had eight. Um, so he he does go into it with a, with a tiny advantage. But uh, I think that's, you know, that that's the question. Like, who um, how many delegates do each of these candidates leave with? And is Ron DeSantis going to have nine delegates before New Hampshire and nine delegates after. So in 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 the 538 polling average, uh, Ron DeSantis currently polling in New Hampshire at a whopping 5.8%. Um, and that does include the the Suffolk poll that I mentioned today that that has him at uh, oh, no, it doesn't include the Suffolk poll. It includes the last Suffolk poll, which had him at eight, but not today's Suffolk poll, which has him at five. So uh, 5.8% for DeSantis and probably heading downward. Smells like momentum. So if, I, if, I'm, if I'm thinking about this correctly, that means that even in New Hampshire, again, if Haley's able to you know, pull off a victory – Trump is still getting delegates out of New Hampshire, and if there were, and and I think that the pro the proportional system makes it difficult for Trump to end up losing because he's not going to just crater. I mean, his support is not just going to crater in the primary. He's going to be picking up delegates even if he gets he finishes second in a state or two. Exactly, and there there are twenty two delegates up for grabs in New Hampshire. There were forty in Iowa, so. Just keeping that so, and Trump got in mind. Of, uh, there we go. Yep. And uh, in New Hampshire, let's say DeSantis doesn't make it to that 10% mark. Um, that would mean that most likely, I mean, unless Christie somehow gets to 10%, which I don't know how that would happen because he dropped out. But, you know, he was polling relatively well in New Hampshire before he dropped out. But 
for our purposes, let's say that most likely scenario, um, we have uh, Trump and Haley both reaching that 10% threshold. That means that the two of them divide the 22 delegates proportionally among the two of them. So um, even if she does win narrowly, Trump is still likely to have a pretty significant lead in delegates in New Hampshire. And I mean, it's still so early that this is really more of just kind of symbolic of how static this race is more than um, kind of a, a, a critical number and reaching the threshold to win the nomination. It's just like another data point that shows how hard it is for anybody other than Trump to win the nomination, even in the event, like you mentioned earlier, Nathan, if, if Haley wins New Hampshire. And even moving away from delegates slightly, but even if DeSantis drops out, uh, it is, I think it is simplistic to assume that all DeSantis supporters are anti-Trump supporters. I think that actually maybe a majority of DeSantis voters would go to Trump in the absence of DeSantis. And so the the notion that, well, if Nikki Haley can just get it into a one-on-one fight, then he, she's going to dethrone Trump is is not that simple. And I don't think really how it would, how it would play out. No. And there, I mean, there's a case to be made that Ron DeSantis staying in the primary is actually good for Haley because it takes away some of Donald Trump's support. Um, if you imagine that most of DeSantis's supporters would go to Trump if DeSantis dropped out. So if it were a one-on-one race, like how many delegates would Trump Trump would have delegates, right? Then he does now. Um, so maybe it is good for Haley if DeSantis sticks sticks in the fray for a little bit. And finally, our last segment, Look What I Found, where we highlight something new that we've discovered. It could be politics, music, movies. It could be anything. Uh, Jacob, what'd you find? So I came across a magazine article from Vanity Fair that was actually published back in August. I think it ended up in the September issue um, that because I subscribe to Vanity Fair, but don't read them uh, in a timely fashion. I just got to last week uh, about a, a guy named Kyle de Rothschild de Chanel, who showed up out of nowhere in New York uh, in about 2018, 2019, and was throwing a ton of money around and became kind of the center of nightlife, was partying with Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, claimed to be a representative of the very wealthy Rothschild family, uh, claimed to be involved in all these big business deals, um, and established himself as a real fixture on the social scene. Um, and then it all fell apart. And it it, it turns out that he uh, was not a Rothschild, but he was, in fact, a 35-year-old married uh, rabbi from Lakewood, New Jersey, who decided that he needed to get away from his family, his wife and, and two children, um, for a couple of years and party it up in New York uh, before he ran out of money and, and got caught. Um, and it's just kind of the why this wild only in New York, only in America kind of story uh, that that to me, I was struck by how long he got away with it, even in the Internet age, uh, pretending to be uh, somebody that he he wasn't. And, you know, I, I always appreciate kind of stumbling on these articles in back issues of magazines that are just so fascinating, so well reported uh, that I would not have come across uh, in in any other kind of context, but because I still, you know, I'm clinging on to print media, um, I, I can be entertained in that kind of manner. It was by Nate Freeman, was the the journalist who wrote it um, in Vanity Fair a couple months ago. I, it seems like this is just guaranteed that Leonardo DiCaprio is going to play this guy in a movie, right? <laughs> I mean, it's like, well, although maybe that one scene where they interact might be a little, you might have to use some, some CGI or AI to get that done. Yeah, that is if uh, if if Kyle Deschanel Rothschild doesn't uh, run for Congress next as his as his follow up move, we'll see. I don't know. Let's not. I can, we can't rule it out. Uh, <laughs> Leah, what did you find? All right, I was doing some research into New Hampshire and discovered a a historical figure that I, I feel like maybe I should be embarrassed that I was not familiar with him, but his name was. Major General Leonard Wood, and he won 
1920 New Hampshire primary, which was the first time that New Hampshire was the first primary. <laughs> they actually held a primary in 1916, but in 1920, it was the first time that they were the first in the nation primary. So this major general, Leonard Wood, he goes on to win a majority of delegates. But when he gets to the convention, um, he loses the nomination to Warren Harding. Um, and in the Associated Press, I really need to just this is all from uh, the New Hampshire Secretary of State. So like maybe they have some, you know, they're not an unbiased observer here, but I'm using their version of history. Um, but they did quote the Associated Press saying that Harding of Ohio was chosen by a group of men in a smoke-filled room earlier today as the Republican candidates. And that was the first time the term smoke-filled room appeared in print. What? I like this. This is mm -hmm. great. And actually, Jacob, you were just I thinking know. about the 1920 primary, weren't you? Is that oh, yeah. I, it, it's always <laughs> on my mind. Well, you know, they chose Warren Harding because he was handsome, right? That This was the thing about Harding, uh, who <laughs> had had a very um, uh, profligate personal life as well. Um, but uh, Was he handsome? Uh, for, for his day. I believe for, you. For his day. I just don't well, remember supposedly that. He, he, had, he had a sort of like a magnetic attraction. I don't really know what was going on there. Um, but but no, I, I believe that- What about Leonard that, Wood? Was he handsome? Uh, looking at a photo know. of him now, I don't Google know. Google it. Um, but, but, but Harding- <laughs> Got to be careful where we're going with this. No. Harding was, right, because this, this election was like a very contentious convention, right? It was not- um, it was not clear who the Republicans were going to put up. There were any number of candidates. FDR had, uh, not FDR, uh, Teddy Roosevelt had kind of been considered one of the front runners. He dies the year before the election. Uh, so there are a ton of people who, who are running in this race. And Harding becomes the consensus pick after a bazillion ballots, right? It takes them a really long time. And, and part of the reason is because he was kind of inoffensive and he was handsome. Um, I'm sure there were other. Well, according to the bi biographer, according to the New Hampshire <laughs> Secretary of State press release, according to the biographer, uh, I want to make sure I have his first name, last name, a column. He, he, he says he came to the Republican convention solidly in the lead, but was defeated by a combination combination of political manipulation and last minute bribery, and that um, Harding, uh, unlike or and Wood had quote rebuffed the powerful oil powerful oil interests, and that's part of why. Anyway, this is and I also like this has to, this is a Teddy a Theodore Roosevelt thing I've heard from Theodore Roosevelt enthusiasts that if you say Teddy, they get upset because he didn't like that. Um, but 1920 election, apparently pretty cool. I'm going to read about it. If anybody has any book recommendations about the 1920 election, I am now all in on this well, one, especially while this primary is if, kind of boring. If there is a, a book that covers a lot more than just 1920, uh, but Warren Harding plays a very big role in it. It's called Sex with Presidents. It's a very funny. Uh, it's a very funny book, and can <laughs> cover your ears. I didn't want but, this to be the last episode of the entire podcast. Warren Harding. Warren Harding has a solid portion of this book devoted to him. Um, there's a great, uh, you know, I'll, I'll keep it. I'll keep it at least PG or PG thirteen. So I won't say what Alice Roosevelt, TR's daughter, said about uh, Harding. <gasps> but there's a great. She had a great line about Warren Harding uh, in that book. Um, anyways, <laughs> it's worth watching this on YouTube just to watch Nathan's face turn bright red, and also while he just wonders how we got to this point, just the defeated. Defeated. Went face. from Leonard anyway, Wood. I'm Leonard sorry, Wood I... to this. Um, no. All right. Well, let I mean... me let me try to get us back uh, to the all ages portion of our podcast. That don't tell uh, don't tell my boys. Uh, but I'm starting to like their X Wing miniatures tabletop game. Uh, I don't know, over the weekend, my ten year old 
was in a tournament. He participated in a store tournament at our local Labyrinth um, uh, game store here in D.C., which is fantastic. Not a sponsor, but if they're open to it, we're open to it. Uh, but I watched him play for hours. And it was actually the winner of the store championship uh, get got an invitation to the world championships in exotic Schaumburg, Illinois. Uh, but uh, my, my son didn't make it, but he had a great time. And I have been very reluctant to play because there are a lot of rules. And when I say a lot, just think four times a lot uh, in that. But it's starting to seep in a little bit. It does look fun. It, it is a way to to bond with my kids. I know you're supposed to do that. Uh, but uh, I don't know. So I'm, I'm, I'm finding that I may actually like this this game. I want to learn. I want to learn how to play this game. I'm in. Ooh. Next episode, we can <laughs> yeah. play a lot. You know how like uh, who is it? Major Garrett does the the takeout where he does he does uh, interview and a meal. We could do interview and an X wing miniatures tabletop game for for our podcast. You know, I know someone who's involved with the with the Major Garrett podcast. <laughs> I don't know. Is this a? Is it? Is it kosher for me to share that my husband produces that podcast <laughs> that wants to place at my dad's restaurant? Um, yeah, we can, we can, we can make this happen. Just have to combine. You guys, you don't know. I I appreciate the solidarity on the game, but you may not know what you're getting into. <laughs> Maybe should, I'll, we'll show you the rules first, and you can you can see. But no, it's uh, it's it's a fun. If there's anyone out there that already knows how to play. Uh, we should we should probably connect as our circles are now are now overlapping. Uh, but thank you, uh, thank you all for and thank you, Leah, for joining us on this on this journey on this episode. <laughs> thank you for having me. And that's all the time we have. Thank you for joining us. At Inside Elections, we provide nonpartisan analysis of congressional, presidential, and gubernatorial races. With a combination of reporting and data, we break down the key races and bring valuable context to complex elections. Please go to InsideElections.com to subscribe to the bi-weekly newsletter. We have individual subscriptions as well as group packages that are tailored to boost corporate and association packs. If you like today's episode, uh, please subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a rating. If you're watching on YouTube, please also subscribe and click the thumbs up button. Maybe even leave us a comment. Uh, if you didn't like today's episode, please email Asa Hutchinson. We also want to thank our producers, Alan Tazinski and Melissa Lenner of Pretty Easy Podcasts and our associate producer, Conrad Tolosa. Please come back and join us again next time.